Matthew 25, 6, 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It is not, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They, are, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, o you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. How y'all doing? I got a text from a friend in the middle of the service, and uh, it said, I've known Larry for 14 years, and I never knew he could sing like that. <laughs> so neither did I. Neither did I. So. Praise the Lord, yes. Come on. We'll have, to, we'll have to have him back at some point. But. <laughs> Continuing thinking about the Lord uh, in our sermon series here, second week, looking at the issue of our relationship to money, faith, finances, particularly focusing on this issue of dependence. Last week, we looked at two reasons that Jesus gave us for why we shouldn't live our life for money, why we shouldn't depend upon money and all that it can buy. The first reason, you might recall if you were here last week, is we have needs that money can't buy. The reality is, as human beings, we have needs psychologically beyond that extend beyond just what money can buy. Money can't buy happiness. Reason number two, Jesus taught us, is that worldly things can't take care of us because worldly things need us to take care of them. The reality is that we, we gather things up thinking that these things are going to take care of us and be our deliverance, but all we find ourselves doing is taking care of everything we've gathered up because it needs us to attend to it. Money and the things that it can buy are good as far as they go, but they can't take care of the core needs of the human being. Not all the money in the world can guarantee our safety, secure our hope, provide a sense of purpose, earn respect, or buy love, despite what our culture tells us. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate source of deliverance needs to come from something other than money. So that was last week's message about the vanity of money and the vanity of the things that it can buy. Continuing on in our series, then, we move from the negative, what we shouldn't live for, what we shouldn't depend upon, to the positive, what we should live for, what we should depend upon. Our text today comes from Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, 
And uh, it's actually a continuation of the text, or one of the texts that we were looking at last week in chapter 6. Jesus, in the middle of the sermon, begins to talk about money, the frailty of it, and how it's not wise to base your hope on money. And he begins talking about money, really, you could say, probably in verse 19. And he continues talking about money all the way to the end of our passage this morning. So we're picking it up here in the middle of his flow of thought. We're going to divide our text today into two main sections. We'll look at verses 25 uh, through 32. That'll be kind of the first section, just really almost all the passage, looking at another reason that Jesus gives about why we don't need to focus on money, which is really a setup for then the conclusion of his comments about money uh, in verse 34 and 33 and 34, where Jesus tells us what we should be living for, namely the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So my prayer as I was praying for this sermon, praying for myself, praying for you all uh, as you were uh, coming this week, my prayer is that if you're a Christian, that the Lord would use Jesus' teaching, that the Lord would speak to you today to help break fully and free, to, to free you and to break you free of your dependence upon money. It's a, it's, a, it's a vain thing to hope in, and I would have you be free of that. The Lord would have you be free of that. If you're not a Christian today, perhaps you've come with a friend, perhaps you've been coming for a while, perhaps this is your first Sunday, but if you're not a Christian, then my prayer is that you would come to see the rich blessings that come from being a child of God. Jesus is going to talk about all the blessings that come from being a child of God. I pray that you would see and hear that this morning. All right, so into our passage, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Uh, The first section of our text we're going to look at, we're going to get this third reason that Jesus gives us about why we don't need to live our lives for money. We're picking up things in the middle of Jesus' sermon, as I mentioned, which extends all the way actually from 5 to chapter 7. And it's helpful to keep in mind then here as uh, you reflect, we're reflecting on this passage, it's helpful to keep in mind Jesus' audience, who he's talking to. He's not talking to an upper or middle class audience who live comfortably with all of their needs met. It's not his audience. He's talking to the common folks of his day, many of whom live on the margins of the society in the first century a world. Not everyone he's talking to is poor by first century standards, but many of them are, in fact, poor. For many of these folks that Jesus is talking to, the basic necessities of life were not a given to be taken for granted. All right? It wasn't assumed that they were always going to have everything that they needed for just life and sustenance. A bad summer with the crops and the winter might be really difficult or even deadly. And so on. So they had plenty of reasons to have some legitimate anxiety about their basic necessities. Well, Jesus begins in verse 25 with an exhortation not to be anxious about what to eat or what to wear. And he's picked food and clothing because they're two of the most basic necessities. But Jesus really has in mind all of the human necessities, right? So what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, our shelter, all of our basic bodily needs that we need for survival. He says, don't be anxious about those things. And then in verse 26, he begins to give his reasons for why we shouldn't be anxious about these things. He invites his listeners to consider 
the birds of the air. Jesus says, consider the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather their seeds into barns. Instead, they just live from day to day, feasting on the bounty provided by God's good hand. The bounty that God has generously cast over the earth day after day. I have, I have in my mind, I don't know why, when I read this passage, I think of Mary Poppins and the scene, Feed the Birds, you know, where the old lady's in the park and she's casting out the seed to the birds, right? God is doing that over all of creation. It's like he's created the world in such a way that it's cast food for the birds over all creation. They don't have to think about where their food's coming from. It's just there before them. The birds don't stress about food, Jesus says, because God feeds them. He provides for them. And then Jesus invites us to consider the fields. The fields, like the birds, don't toil. They don't labor or spin in order uh, to clothe themselves. In fact, they're as unworried about their clothing as the birds are about what they're going to eat. And yet, even though the fields don't worry about their clothing, Jesus tells us, they are clothed with lilies of rich and intricate beauty. Jesus is probably teaching outside in the countryside at this point, big fields. It's a big enough space for the crowd that's come to hear him preach. And perhaps he points over to the lilies of the field. He says, consider the lilies of the field. And there's the field strewn about with the rich delicacy of God's uh, creation and the flowers. Indeed, Jesus says, the flowers of the fields provide a richer covering than even King Solomon with all of his wealth and splendor was able to produce for himself. We mentioned King Solomon last week, one of the richest men, uh, richest kings uh, in the Old Testament. And even King Solomon with all of his riches was not able to produce clothing as intricate and as beautiful as God produces for the grasses of the field. So Jesus' basic point in all of this, with both of these illustrations, is that if God takes such care and attention of the lesser, meaning his creation of birds and fields of grass, then how much more will he take care of the greater, his children? And that's, Jesus says, is why we don't need to stress and worry about the basic necessities of life. Not because the basic necessities aren't important, not because they don't matter, but because God is providing them for us. Now, this is an easy point to understand. It's not always an easy point to believe, though, is it? And do we really believe that God is providing for us as his children the basic necessities of life? Jesus here doesn't adopt the stoic, philosophical line and try to assure us that we don't need to be anxious because we don't really need the basic necessities of life. It's not, don't worry about what you will eat or drink or wear because those things don't really matter. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say these things don't matter. He says they do matter. In fact, he acknowledges in verses 31 and 32 that the Gentiles, who is the world that doesn't know God, that isn't looking to God as their father, the Gentiles, they run around concerned and anxious about acquiring what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear, all the basic necessities of life. So they do matter, but Jesus' point is not that they don't matter. Jesus' point is that God knows what you need. 
He's aware of your needs. He loves you. He's looking out for you. And he's providing for you. And he hasn't left you as his child. He has not left you to yourself to fend for yourself. Perhaps for some of you here this morning, that's a particularly comforting and important word. You call God Father. You're living to honor him. But you're prone to anxiousness about your material needs. Maybe that's because you don't have much, by the way, of material resources. You stress about where the rent money is going to come at the end of the month. Or you stress about maybe even where the grocery money is going to come at the end of the week. Or maybe you have a lot. Your bank account is full, but you find yourself, too, worrying about what might happen to you one day if all of it disappeared. What would happen to you? Would you be bereft and destitute? Either way, you find yourself anxious about your basic needs. And because you're anxious about your basic needs, because you're not sure that they're always going to be there, you find yourself striving to supply your own needs, just like the Gentiles do who don't know God. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? You give a lot of thought and attention and anxiety to that. What do you worry about? That's you. What do you worry about with respect to money and resources? Does it keep you up at night? Maybe it does. Jesus is saying to you this morning a comforting word. He's saying, don't stress. Don't worry. God's got you. He's looking out for you. As a father looks out for his children, God is looking out for you. He has no shortage of ways to provide what you need. So if you're a bit of a worrier, don't cringe in shame at Jesus' words here. Jesus isn't giving you a harsh word or a strong rebuke. He's not rebuking the poor for being anxious. He's bringing a comforting reassurance. He's saying, your Father in heaven knows what you need. He's going to take care of you, Jesus says. Trust in that. Find your peace in that. Be at rest and be at peace. Maybe some of you needed to hear that word from Jesus this morning. Let me give a bit of an aside here. Most of us, though, are not this morning here stressed about our needs being met. We're not worried from day to day about the basic necessities of life being there. Most of us. Some of us do, but most of us don't. We don't worry about having a place to live, to sleep each night. We worry about having a nicer place to live, if we're going to worry about anything. We don't worry about if we're going to eat. We worry about where we're going to eat. Have you done this right? You go out with your friends or your spouse, and you're like, where should we eat? Oh, I don't know. We should eat here. No, we should eat here. No, we ate there last week. No, we ate there last week. Oh, first world problems. You know, it's just... <laughs> so hard to figure out where we're going to eat for dinner. And the only reason we worry about what we're going to wear is because we have too many things in our closet to choose from. Right? That's why we worry about what we're going to wear. For most of us here this morning, if we stress about anything, we don't stress about our needs being met. We stress about our wants being met. And unfortunately, and there's nothing inherently wrong with having wants, 
right? So I'm not, that's not the point of what I'm saying. But I, I would say Jesus doesn't have as much comfort to give for those of us in that situation, stressing about our wants. It would be a mistake to take Christ's words of comfort here about God meeting our needs and apply that to our wants and our surpluses. When I was putting this sermon together and I was writing it, I didn't quite have that clear in my mind. And I, I found myself applying Jesus' words about providing for us in keeping with kind of all of my wants. And I thought, no, that can't be right. And then I found myself being like, well, that's actually kind of disappointing. You know, because what I really want is my wants, not my needs. Right? If you're in a place where your needs are in jeopardy, this is a comforting passage. If you're in a place where you're living your life to secure all your wants, this isn't maybe quite as comforting. Now, this doesn't mean that God only gives us the bare minimum. It's not the case. It's not as though God's up in heaven. He's talking to, like, the angel of care. And he's, they're like, God's like, well, now, how many calories does the human body need in order to survive? And the angel of care is like, uh, a minimum of 350 a day or they die. And God's like, okay, 350, that's all we're going to give human beings, you know. Cardboard box in the summer, you know, an insulated cardboard box in the winter, that's all we're giving people, right? No, God is a generous God. He's a gracious God, just like a good father is a generous and a gracious and a good father. He's often very generous in meeting our needs, above and beyond. And his extravagance can be seen all throughout the world that he's made. This is Jesus' point. Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. Like, God didn't have to clothe the fields with such beauty, with such richness, but he does. So God is a generous God who often extends above and beyond our needs. But God's promise is that he will supply our needs. That's his promise. Not every last facet of the American dream. God doesn't promise us that. So as long as we're not living our lives for the American dream or for wealth or for all of our wants and all that our wants can buy, then this is a comforting truth. We don't need to live our lives focused on money because God has promised that he is taking care of us. We don't need to be anxious about it. We need money. God knows what you need, Jesus says. But he's taking care of you. He'll take care of you. Then Jesus tells us what we should be living for. We shouldn't be chasing after all the things that the world is chasing after. We should be living for, in verse 33, seeking first above all else the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, this is a familiar verse probably to many of us if we've been around church for any length of time. We even have songs written about uh, this verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? But some of us, I wonder if we're not exactly sure what that means. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what does that look like exactly? Maybe we've got some vague ideas in our mind. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that's like going to church, probably fits in there, reading our Bible, being honest, you know, and otherwise kind of keeping our nose clean and doing good things. Let me say a few words about what Jesus is getting at here. The term righteousness is often used in the English language as basically a synonym with morality. So if I were to say, uh, Bill, Bill's a great man, he's a righteous man, you would maybe hear me to say something like, oh, well, Bill must be a very moral, religious man, 
So like righteousness is like religious people who are moral, right? That's kind of how we can think about this vaguely. So when we read Jesus telling us to seek God's righteousness, we, we hear him saying something like, pursue a life of morality, which however admirable and compelling such a life might be, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is not a moralist in that sense. To understand what Jesus was getting at, we need to understand how the term righteousness was used in his day, particularly in the the Jewish Hebrew context with which the word was used. The term righteous has the primary idea of acting in accordance with one's covenant obligations. Acting in accordance with one's covenant obligations. So my wife and I, our family, uh, we frequent the Oak Park Public Library. We have entered into covenant obligations, as it were, with the Oak Park Library, right? And so we've got our little library card, and we go in there, and we check out books, and we have certain obligations upon us as those who use uh, the library, and then the library has certain obligations upon it as part of its covenant obligations for what they do, right? So we, uh, we check out books, we kind of our obligation is to check out books, keep them safe, return them on time, be respectful you know, when we come into the library, etc. The library's obligations are not that same list. The library's obligations are to make sure that the facility is kept up, that the books are on the shelf in the right order, to be friendly and help check the books out, etc. And so there are, there's an there's a obligation that comes with an agreement to sort of partner together, as it were. When we used in this way... The term righteousness speaks of God's covenant commitments. God has entered into a covenant with his people. And in entering into a covenant, there are certain expectations that come from both God and his people. One of God's chief covenantal commitments is to take care of us. that's That's what a good and righteous God does. He takes care of his own defends us, rescues us if we're persecuted, provides for us. So the term righteous or righteousness is used frequently in the Psalms as virtually a synonym for salvation and deliverance. If you go into the Psalms and you read through the Psalms and you look for this term righteous or righteousness referring to God, God being righteous, you're going to see that very often it has the idea of God stepping in to save because he's righteous. So, for instance, in Psalm 30, if you, O Lord, are in you, O Lord, the psalmist writes, do I take refuge? Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. The psalmist is looking for God to act righteously to him because he's in a bad spot. And he wants God to step in and to fulfill his covenant commitments of delivering and saving his people. Or the prophets use it this way quite a bit as well. So Micah 6, 4 through 5. God is talking with the Israelites who have uh, lost sight of God's goodness. And so God's reminding them of how he has come to their rescue quite frequently throughout their history. And he reminds them of this in Micah 6, 4 through 5. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the great leaders of the Jewish people. O my people, Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. So now Balak, Balaam, and Shittim to Gilgal, these were 
high watermark episodes of God's faithfulness in delivering his people. You can go back and you can read these episodes in the book of Exodus. But God is saying, look what I've done for you. Look how I've delivered you in the past. I've done these things that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Remember what I've done so that you might know that I am righteous before you, that I have not neglected you, that I am here to care for you and to take care of you. God's righteousness is his faithfulness to his covenant commitments. So that's why the people of the Bible appeal to God's righteousness when they are in bad straits. And that's why we should too. We want God's promise to come true in our life, which is to say we want him to act righteously on our behalf. We don't ask for God to act, we don't ask for God to act morally on our behalf when we're in bad straits, right? We ask for him to act righteously on our behalf when we're in bad straits because we need his righteous deliverance. So when Jesus tells us that we should seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, he's telling us to focus our attention above all things on God's covenantal purposes. Or we could say it like this. To seek after God's righteousness is to make God's covenantal priorities our own priorities. God's priorities, Jesus teaches all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is that we would come to find our true, as human beings, to find our true eternal source of hope and life and joy in him. And having found him to be the source of our true life, joy, and hope, that we would then help others to do the same. We would extend that grace onto others. That's God's priority, that he would be a blessing to the world. Which is why Jesus, was, when he was asked what the greatest commandments were, he said the commandments can all be summed up in two commands, really. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing that, you are fulfilling God's righteousness. That's what God's righteousness is, right? To love God and to love other people. Jesus is telling us here that we should dedicate our whole lives to God's righteous agenda, to seeing God's life-giving justice and hope dawn in the hearts of all people. That's what it means to seek God and his righteousness. God is not asking us to merely be moral. That's the easiest and least important part of being a Christian. There are a hundred million people who live moral lives, but who are fundamentally trusting in themselves and they are living for their own agenda. Maybe even some of them give money to charity or to churches or religious organizations. Jesus is asking for something much deeper, more fundamental and greater. He's asking us to bend the whole agenda of our lives into harmony with God's agenda. He wants our whole lives to bend into harmony with God's agenda. You can't buy God off by throwing a little money his way or even a lot of money his way. He doesn't need or want your money. He wants your whole life. He wants you. That's what he wants. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors and uh, one of his, one of my favorite quotes from him or passages from him. I want to pull it out here and read it to you. I've 
edited it down a little bit because it would be too long. But listen to what C.S. Lewis says on this point. I think it's so insightful and so right on. It says, the ordinary idea which we all have before we become Christians is this. We take as a starting point our ordinary self with its various desires and interests. We then admit that something else, call it morality, call it decent behavior, call it the good of society, has claims upon us, claims that interfere with our innate desires. Well, we acknowledge we shall have to do those claims. But we are hoping all the time that when all the demands have been met, our poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and to do what it likes. In fact, we are very like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he hopes that there will be enough left over for him to live on. But the Christian way is fundamentally different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or cut off a branch there. I want to have the whole tree. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have the whole tooth out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. Hand over the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. Jesus isn't after the people's money. It's not why he's talking about money. Right? He's after their hearts. He's after their lives. He knows that joy can only be found in God. And so he is saying, don't waste your time trying to find your happiness in money. You can't find it there. Turn your heart to God. That's where you find your happiness, and your joy. Bend your life into his purposes and find the joy and the happiness. God will take care of all the things that you need. He knows what you need. So what are you living for this morning? What priority animates your life? Has his will become your will? Or are you more preoccupied with providing for yourself than you are with seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness? In closing, i got four test questions that you can ask yourself about your relationship with God, your relationship with money, to help reveal whether God's righteousness is a priority as it should be in your life. First question, have I entered into a covenant with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Perhaps you've never really actually thought about who you are in relation to God or who you are in relation to money or God and money or any of these things. Perhaps you're just new to the whole Christian faith or religion in general. And you've never considered that God is taking care of you or that God offers to take care of his children. And you've been concerning yourself, as is, would be expected, with taking care of yourself. Because who's going to take care of you? If God's not taking care of you, and now you're in the adult world, you've got to take care of yourself. Right? And you've spent your life thinking about your money primarily in relation to how you need it to take care of you. You're like the orphan who grows up on the street, who has to learn to fend for themselves. 
will come in from out of the cold. Let me tell you that there is a God in heaven. Jesus tells you that there is a God in heaven who loves you, who will make you his child, who will wipe away your sin, wipe away your shame, wipe away your rebellion. He will wipe away all your hurt and your pain and he will bring you to himself and he will care for you like a benevolent father cares for his children. Come in and receive the free gift of salvation that God gives to all who come to him in faith. Enter into the covenant with him and his covenant commitments extend to you too as well. So have I entered into a covenant with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Second question. Am I giving more of my money away than might seem wise to a person without faith? I don't know how much you're giving to either church or beyond, certainly. I don't have any way of knowing. I'm not interested in knowing. No doubt some of you are giving away far more money than I am. Some of you are giving away very little or maybe no money. The point is not so much how much money you give. We're going to get into that next week, try to think about like, what are some ways to think about how much money to give. Right? That's coming uh, in the weeks uh, to come. So I don't know how much you're giving away, but, but does your confidence that God is caring for you free you up to be more generous with your money than those around you who don't think God is caring for you would consider wise. So if your father is not a faith-filled man or your mother's not a faith-filled person or your sister or your brother or your friend or whatever, maybe your financial advisor, and they see how much you give away, and they're like, oh, well, wait a second on that. And they're like, is that, it's very nice that you all care about your religion and everything, and I respect that, but is that really a wise thing to do? Like, our giving should stretch the, the credulity of those who don't believe that God is taking care of us. But if God is taking care of us, then that frees us up to be more generous with our finances than we otherwise would be. So, are you giving more of your money away than might seem wise to a person without faith? Don't let wisdom just become a a charade for your cowardice and your faithlessness. Don't choose the wise path by the world's standards. Choose the wise path by Christ's standard. Your giving should reflect your confidence that God is taking care of you. Third question, is my emotional state about the future connected to how much or how little money I have? As you think out into the future, whether it's the end of the week or whether it's the end of the month or the end of the year or your retirement or whatever that might be, does your emotional state, your positive or negative feeling about the future go up or down based on your bank account going up and down so that your happiness is just tied tightly to your bank account and it just goes up and down like this and you're like just tossed to and fro by economics, right? If your happiness is tied to your bank account balance, then that's probably a bad sign that you've got too much of your hope in your money. And then finally, the fourth question, I uh, steal this one from my favorite church father, St. Augustine. He asks this question, does it grieve you more to own a bad house or a bad life? That's a poignant question. 
right? Like what, is, what, what bothers you most? When there's a problem with like the house, leak in the roof, you know, maybe a scratch in the side of the car, the things that you own, right? When there's something broken about your soul and your loves are disordered, like what grieves you most? Right? And if you spend more time worrying about the integrity of your physical property than you do about the integrity of your soul, that's a bad sign as well and suggests that maybe you've got some things out of whack. God loves us. He's taking care of us. He knows what we need. And he's not an absent father that gets caught off guard. Right? He knows what we need. He's watching over us. He wants us to live for him and his righteousness because that's the true path to joy and the fullness of life. That's where he knows we're going to find peace and joy and happiness and hope for the future. We place our hope in him. Well, we've got more work to do in the coming weeks on this topic. We haven't certainly answered all the questions. Maybe you're saying, I agree with last week's sermon that I shouldn't depend upon money. I don't even need to be a Christian to agree with that. And I agree with this week's sermon that I don't need to stress about taking care of myself because I know that God is taking care of me. And I've committed myself to seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness. I, I definitely see that that's the right way to go. But now what? Like, where do I go from here, what should I do with my money and my life consistent with my primary pursuit of God's kingdom and his righteousness? What shape should my life and my commitments take? So come back next week. We're going to continue on with these questions. Let's listen to more of what Jesus has to say about money. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, not just as a great teacher, though certainly uh, we needed him to instruct us and to teach us, but even beyond that, Lord, uh, we thank you that he has come and been an example for us of what it means to trust you, to live a life that is dependent upon your providence and your care in his life. And then beyond that, Lord, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our life, to be our hope, to be our salvation and our deliverance. We recognize that we are not only bereft at times of physical necessities, but we are bereft of spiritual necessities as well. We can't find our way to life on our own. Thank you that you sent Jesus, who is your life. He is the bread that's come down from heaven, that we can eat and never die. So God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how you care for us through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.